The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Are you ready to open your mind and your heart? Welcome to the Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival, with your host, Lauren N. Nile. We can mature beyond today's prejudice and xenophobia. We can save our beautiful planet. The keys are self-awareness, awareness of others, and most important, love. Now, here's Lauren. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to my show, The Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival. I'm your host, Lauren Nile. The purpose of the show is to engage in conversations that that I, anyway, personally believe are crucial for humanity's future survival. Now, last week was the introductory show of the series, and I used it to introduce you to both myself and to the show. Now, if you missed it, you are probably aware that you can still listen to it. It's available as a podcast on my Voice America program page, uh, and it's on the Variety Channel at voiceamerica.com. So just go to the Variety Channel, search for my name, Lauren N. Nile, N-I-L-E, and you'll be able to hear last week's show as well if you missed it. Now, um, for more information about me and about my work, just go to my website, uh, and that's laurennile.com. I'm an organizational development trainer, a a keynote speaker, an author, and you can read all about my work if you just go to my site, laurennile.com. So, this week, the title of the show is The Human Species, We're All Related. Our DNA proves it. And we're actually going to get this week into the first substantive issue of the show, which is the oneness of humanity. But before going any farther, let me, uh, let me tell you that this is a call-in show today, and I'd love to get your thoughts. I'd love to get your comments about what we'll be d- discussing today. So in a few minutes, I'll give you the number, uh, and uh, I'm going to ask you to call in and just share with me your thoughts and your ideas about what we'll be talking about today. Now, if we are truly going to make it in the future, because I do think that our future is potentially at peril as a species. I really do, if you look at what's going on in the world today. But if we're going to truly make it in the future, if we're going to avoid destroying ourselves, one of the most important things that we must do, I believe, is understand our oneness. We must understand that as a species, we're much more alike then we are different. We've just got to know that. We can't survive unless we come to a true and profound understanding of that fundamental important fact. I mean, just look at how we're living on this earth right now because we're ignorant of that fact for the most part. Just look at how we're living on the planet, all across the planet. I mean, our apparent ignorance of the reality of our oneness is literally killing us. Or actually, 
It's allowing us to kill each other. You know, the most dramatic example is genocide. Now, the most recent genocidal campaign of one human group against another has already occurred in the 21st century. We're only 17 years old in this century, and already we've had a mass genocide. It was the deaths of thousands, and by some accounts, hundreds of thousands of innocent human beings that were massacred in a brutal war in the Darfur region of Sudan. In the 20th century, we witnessed the murder of between, depending upon your source again, somewhere between 500,000 and one and a half million innocent Armenian human beings at the hands of the Turkish government. We saw the murder of six million innocent Jewish human beings by the German Third Reich and of millions of other innocent human beings by the same Third Reich for their disability, for their sexual orientation, and for their political activity. One and a half million human beings, innocent human beings, were killed by Cambodia's Khmer Rouge during the 1970s. Thousands of Muslim men, innocent Muslim men and boys, were killed during the Bosnian War. Between 800,000 and 1 million, depending upon your source, between 800,000 and 1 million innocent Rwandan human beings were killed by their fellow Rwandans based upon their tribal membership. This all happened within the 20th century. And of course, most of us know, many of us know, if you've studied history just even a little bit, that genocide was a tactic that was historically used by European conquerors against the indigenous people of the West. Now, in terms of innocent African human beings, it was clearly bondage and not genocide that was the goal of the enslavement of African human beings in the Americas. But the sheer number of African people who either died or were murdered during the transatlantic slave trade, and let me tell you, those estimates vary from 4.5 million to 10 million, from 10 million to 15 million, and I even read one account that estimated that between 15 and 20 million innocent African human beings were killed during the transatlantic slave trade. As I say, it wasn't genocide, it was enslavement that was the cause of their deaths. But in any discussion of genocide, clearly uh, that transatlantic slave trade deserves mention because of the sheer number of innocent human beings that lost their lives. During the World War II bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, again, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of innocent human beings lost their lives. 150,000 innocent people in Hiroshima and 75,000 innocent people in Nagasaki. Again, the goal there wasn't in any way um, uh, genocide, but the sheer numbers of innocent people that we lost deserves mention. Estimates of the number of female human beings, innocent female human beings that we burned alive at the stake in Europe for over 200 years, based upon the belief, and often it was just a purported belief, that they were witches, range from 30,000 to 9 million. Uh, We inflicted 
massive human suffering and fighting the crusades and carrying out the inquisition and in oppressing and torturing and killing scientists during Europe's Middle Ages. Over the last 600 years alone, we human beings have engaged in mass rape and slaughter of civilization after civilization in conquering and pillaging society after society after society, the world over. Now, today, the world is racked with terrorism all over the planet. Look at what just happened in Las Vegas the night before last. The largest American mass shooting to date. And of course, as I mentioned in the last show, we're on the brink of nuclear war, apparently. On the brink of nuclear war with North Korea. Just as we were on the brink of nuclear war in the early 1960s with the Soviet Union. Now, all of that, my friends, all of it speaks to deep, tremendous immaturity. Deep, tremendous immaturity on our part. Profound immaturity. A kind and a level of immaturity that's literally killing us. And it's killing not only us, not only human beings, but it's also killing hundreds of other species on the planet at an alarming rate. And indeed, it's killing the planet itself. But what if we could mature? I mean, what would our contemporary world be like, for example, if in 1948 the Palestinians and the then new Israelis had been able to begin and to continue to live respectfully and in peace with each other? Can we even imagine, can we even begin to imagine, to envision what the Western Hemisphere, North, Central, and South America would be like today had its indigenous people not been subjugated in and in many cases forcibly removed from their lands? What if the Europeans who began arriving on their shores in massive numbers over the last five to six hundred years attempted to live in peace and in harmony with the first inhabitants of the Americas? How might contemporary human civilization now be different had the first and all subsequent meetings of Africans and Europeans been on the basis of friendship and mutual esteem and and shared learning? What if women over the last 5,000 years of human history had been full contributors in every society around the world? Unfortunately, those scenarios are so far from our actual history that I don't think we can imagine what the world would be like today. But I certainly would love to. I'd love to know what our world would be like today if none of those things had happened. So what is it that we must know? What is one of the most crucial, important, foundational pieces of information that we have to know that can, for example, serve as a catalyst a kind of springboard, if you will, to move us, to move the human species, all of us, beyond this madness? Well, it's not rocket science. It's very simple, my friends. One of the most important foundational pieces of information that can serve, I think, 
as a, a, a kind of springboard to propel us into a different future, to literally change our trajectory as a species, to have us take that fork in the road to more maturity in the future, one of the most important foundational pieces of knowledge that we must have for that to happen is the fact that as human beings, we are one family. Let me say that again. As human beings, we are one family. We are literally one human family. Now, I've actually written a book about this. It's, it's called Race, My Story and Humanity's Bottom Line. Race, My Story and Humanity's Bottom Line. And I go into great detail in my book about the oneness of humanity. The first, uh, I guess the first full quarter of the book is my actual story of growing up in the 1950s and 60s in New Orleans, in New Orleans, Louisiana, my hometown, under segregation until I was 11 when President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 64. But uh, the, the entire rest of the book is devoted to the science and the psychology and the sociology of race and racism, particularly in the United States. So it's time for us to take a break now, but when we get back from the break, I'm going to share with you the scientific truth, at least a a thumbnail sketch of the scientific truth of the oneness of humanity and how we are all related. So join me after the break. We'll get right into it. And I look forward to talking to you then. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Lauren is available for readings of her book, Race, My Story, and Humanity's Bottom Line, for keynote speaking engagements, training engagements, and for the facilitation of retreats. She works with both large and small organizations. Her interactive and experiential workshops range from four hours to four days in length. When working with groups, Lauren's style is a comfortable blend of both passion and peacefulness. She brings her sense of humor appropriately to all of her work. Lauren's work with groups has been described as eye-opening, inspirational, powerful, and life-changing. The goal of Lauren's work with employers is to help organizations create work environments in which every individual is both highly welcomed and equally valued. The goal of Lauren's speaking and training in the greater society is to help the human species grow in both wisdom and compassion. Her fervent desire is to help all people see the divine in themselves and themselves in each other. For more information about Lauren's programs, please visit laurennile.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. This is the fate of humanity. Crucial conversations for our survival. To reach host Lauren N. Nile with questions or comments about the program, please send an email to author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. That's author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. Now, let's return to the fate of humanity. Well, welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Lauren Nile. And before the break, I promise to get into the scientific truth 
of the oneness of humanity, at least to provide a thumbnail sketch of it. And uh, here we go. I'm going to just get right into it. The fundamental truth, my friends, is that Africans conceived, sired, and gave birth to the entire human, human race, the entire human race, all of us. Now, let me stop before I go any farther and say, well, listen, I see on your website you're African-American. Isn't this kind of self-serving for you to be saying? Hey, you know, that's a reasonable question. But let me answer it by telling you that I follow the science. And if I were green, if I were purple, if I were my favorite color, orange, I'd still be saying the same thing. Uh, This isn't me talking. This is what molecular DNA scientists are telling us. And I so love the truth. I so love the human species, my species, humanity, that, you know, no matter what race I may have been born, I'd still be talking about this stuff. So I wanted to just sort of bracket that and uh, mention that before I go any farther. But the truth, as I said, is that Africans conceived and sired and gave birth to the entire human race. Their, their DNA is literally within all of us, each and every human being on the planet. And, you know, whether we hail from the indigenous people of Asia, of North and Central and South America, of any of the Earth's islands, of Australia, you know, whether we identify as, as Middle Eastern or, or Caucasian or African or Asian or bi or multiracial, at the base of all of the DNA in all of our bodies is the DNA of our African ancestors. We all trace our DNA back to our African roots. Without those roots, without our African genetic heritage, we human beings the world over would simply not exist as we exist today. We might be here, but we wouldn't be the homo sapiens that we are today. Now, the science which supports the universality of our African genes is both overwhelming and incontrovertible. Not only is it no longer theory, it hasn't been for many years. The jury is in on this one, folks. So let me share with you in just a nutshell version the science in 10 basic facts based upon our human DNA. And when we come back from the next break, I'd like to hear from you. So those facts. First, number one, the very first humans lived somewhere in southern, perhaps southeast Africa. And human beings lived on only that one continent, the continent of Africa, for hundreds of thousands of years. Fact number two, the skin of our African ancestors was dark. Research conducted by anthropologist uh, Dr. Nina Jablonski determined that folic acid, which is crucial for embryonic development, uh, is destroyed you know, by too much ultraviolet radiation from the sun. And so the skin of our African ancestors had to be dark in order to protect them from overexposure to the sun's UV rays. Dark skin literally saved humanity from dying out and becoming extinct. You can find out more information about this uh, in a video called The Real Eve, which I actually found on the Discovery Channel. It's called The Real Eve. It's fascinating stuff. 
Fact number three, eventually, between 90,000 and 180,000 years ago, Africans began migrating out of Africa. Some went by land and then sea to Australia and to many of the Earth's islands. Some walked north and east into Asia and then later into north and then Central and South America. And others walked north and west into the Middle East and then into Central and finally into Western and Northern Europe. Fact number four, the Homo sapiens who left Africa were not partially formed humans who developed into full human beings of different races around the world after leaving the continent of Africa. No, no, no. When we left Africa, we were fully modern African human beings, fully modern Homo sapiens. Five, those Africans who migrated to the four corners of the earth over time, began to slowly physically adapt to their new environments. Over many generations, you know, it, it took several thousand years, but the Africans who migrated to the northernmost regions of, of the earth began to lose the dark brown color of their skin. And the reason is simple. Since the sun was far less intense in the new environments to which you know, humans migrated out of outside of Africa, our skin no longer required the same degree of protection from the sun's ultraviolet rays. So, you know, in, in other words, as human beings migrated north, our skin needed to be lighter actually to allow for more absorption of vitamin D, which we get from the sun, of course. So in the northern climates, lighter skin was an advantage, you know, in, in, in the new environments. Now, let me just bracket this uh, next little piece of information. It is interesting. As it turns out, melanin is the color, the, the pigment in our skin, which our cells produce using amino acids. It's this pigment, the melanin in our skin, which gives our skin its color, all of us, all human beings. And interestingly, there are only two forms of human melanin, an orange-red pigment called pheomelanin, that's P-H-E-O, melanin. And then there's a black-brown pigment called O-melanin, E-U, E-U melanin, E-U-M-E-L-A-N-I-N. The amino acids, as it turns out, in our bodies create only those two basic colors. So the immensely diverse variety of skin color that exists among human beings arises from various combinations of only those two pigments. Isn't that amazing? All human beings with the exception of people who were born albino, of course. People who were born with the condition of albinism have have no melanin. But with that exception, all human beings have a combination of both, of both pheomelanin and omelanin. The lighter your skin is, the more pheomelanin, the less omelanin you have. The darker your skin, the more omelanin, the less pheomelanin you have. So it's literally true, my friends, that all human beings on the planet have the exact two same skin colors in our bodies. We just have them in different proportions. All right. Now, uh, back to our list. We were on list five. I'm sorry, number five, which is that Africans began to slowly adapt to their environments So it takes, as it turns out, only a few thousand years for skin color to change. A few thousand years. So if tomorrow all of the peoples 
uh, all of the people of the earth who have dark skin were moved to Europe and all of its light-skinned people were moved to Africa in just 5,000 years. That's what the scientists say. 2,000 generations, 5,000 years. In just 5,000 years, <laughs> the people who were then in Africa, the former Europeans would have dark skin, and the people who were then living in Europe, the former Africans, would then have light skin. It's just an adaptation to climate. Now, the hair of the transplanted Africans began to change. The facial features of the Africans who went to Europe and to Asia and to the Americas began to change. Those, um, the science behind that takes far longer than we have on this show to explain. But I, I think you get the gist. In fact, I saw... Um, oh, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago or more. I so wish I had it in my archives, but I, I don't seem to have it. I saw, I guess it was a, well, that was before the Discovery Channel, but it must have been perhaps a PBS uh, documentary showing in silhouette, in profile, in slow motion, an African hunter with a long spear in his hand running, again, in silhouette, in slow motion, running in France. And as he continued to run, they showed this African hunter slowly becoming more and more and more European in his appearance, in his skin color, in his hair texture, in the shape of his nose, in the shape of his, his uh, lips. Number six, the dramatic changes to African skin, hair, and facial features that occurred over time in all of the new habitats to which Africans migrated resulted in what we now think of and refer to as the human races. Those changes to to environment, those adaptations, rather, to our environments on the planet are what we now refer to as race the world over, Asians, Caucasians, Africans, Australians, indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere the various populations of the Earth's islands. Fact number seven, the physical changes that the transplanted Africans underwent were adaptations, as I have said before, and they were advantageous adaptations, uh, ad- adaptations to their new environments. We didn't become Asians and uh, Aboriginal Australians and Caucasians. We, we, we didn't become, you know, different races through a process of evolution, Rather, we became all of those races through the process of adaptation, climatic adaptation. And as I said earlier, fact number eight, those adaptations took only a few thousand years to occur. Fact nine, as a species, we have not had enough time to have developed into essentially different kinds of human beings. Uh, huge changes, for example, changes in our brain size, which would ostensibly result in greater intelligence and then, of course, arguably be true superiority. Those kinds of fundamental changes, brain size, etc., take place only through evolution and not through adaptation, and they require a much longer time period than has occurred since we human beings have migrated out of our African homeland. They take much longer. And our tenth and final fact is that our DNA, the DNA that all of us carry in our bodies, has shown us that not only are all human beings, all modern human beings today, from Africa, we are all from one place. And get this, I was so amazed when I learned this. 
We are all from one village in Africa. But most astounding of all, oh my goodness, my friends, most astounding and profound of all is that every one of us, every single one of the seven plus billion human beings on this planet originate from the same African woman and man. (laughs) I know it sounds incredible. I couldn't believe it myself. The scientists couldn't believe it when they first came upon it. But it is true. Our DNA tells the story. So, when we come back from the break, I'm going to tell tell you a little bit more about that and take some of your calls to see what your thoughts are about this. It is profound, but it is a message that we must get if we are going to survive. And we're smart. As human beings, we are incredibly smart. We're smarter than we are wise, but we're smart. So we can get it. Let's get into it with your help, your comments after the break. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Lauren is available for readings of her book, Race, My Story, and Humanity's Bottom Line, for keynote speaking engagements, training engagements, and for the facilitation of retreats. She works with both large and small organizations. Her interactive and experiential workshops range from four hours to four days in length. When working with groups, Lauren's style is a comfortable blend of both passion and peacefulness. She brings her sense of humor appropriately to all of her work. Lauren's work with groups has been described as eye-opening, inspirational, powerful, and life-changing. The goal of Lauren's work with employers is to help organizations create work environments in which every individual is both highly welcomed and equally valued. The goal of Lauren's speaking and training in the greater society is to help the human species grow in both wisdom and compassion. Her fervent desire is to help all people see the divine in themselves and themselves in each other. For more information about Lauren's programs, please visit laurennile.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. This is the fate of humanity. Crucial conversations for our survival. To reach host Lauren N. Nile with questions or comments about the program, please send an email to author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. That's author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. Now, let's return to the fate of humanity. Hi there, and welcome back, folks. It's Lauren Nile again, your host. So, before the break, we uh, talked about the fact that as human beings, we had 
a very recent origin in one place and that we are literally one huge human family. Back when uh, this information was first being discovered, uh, there was a Harvard paleontologist, Dr. Jay Gould, who said that it makes us realize that all human beings, despite differences in external appearance, are really members of a single entity that's had a very recent origin in one place. There is a kind of biological brotherhood that's much more profound than we ever realized. Okay, now folks, I don't know about you, but I find those facts, the fact that the scientific community is telling us pretty incredible information, I I find those facts amazing. That no matter how different we look on the outside, on the inside, we're all the same. We're all the same. And, you know, that's why no matter what our race, there's so much that we can share. Give me a call. The number is 866-472-5788. I'd love to hear your questions about this and your comments. Share your thoughts with us. The number again, 866-472-5788. Now, it's because we are one species that we can share blood with each other. We can share organs with each other. It's why we're contagious to each other with colds and the flu and more serious diseases, HIV and lots of others. It's why we can all take the same medications for those diseases with virtually the same results. But my friends, most importantly, and the true test of a species, is that we can all procreate together. Listen, the shortest, darkest Central African pygmy and the tallest, whitest, you know, Northern European, let's say Swede or Norwegian, can have a child together. And that child would be fully human. They may perhaps sort of look like me. (laughs) And that's possible only because the chromosomes of all people even when we look so different, even when they look as different as pygmies and Swedes, the chromosomes of all people are exactly the same. I mean, if our chromosomes weren't exactly the same, we wouldn't be able to procreate across all of these various different races of humanity. We, we couldn't produce, you know, fully biologically viable offspring who are themselves capable of reproducing other fully viable, biologically capable uh, human offspring. Now, interestingly enough, horses and donkeys are genetically so similar that they can procreate together. A horse and a donkey can get together and have an offspring. But because they aren't an exact genetic match, what they produce is a mule, And mules, as you may know, are genderless animals. They have no gender, and so they're incapable of reproducing themselves, you know. So they're biologically, uh, you know, not viable, not a real species, if you will. So in order for human beings to procreate together, we have to have an exact genetic match. 
and we do. By the way, horses and donkeys are only one example, but there are several other examples of species on the planet um, that procreate together, but because they're not an exact, they're close enough to do it, but because they're not an exact genetic match, they don't produce biologically viable offspring. Now, later on in the show, I'm going to share more with you about all of this, but again, I'd love to get your thoughts on it, so do call in whether you have a comment or a question. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. The number is 866-472-5788. We can have a conversation about it. Now, among the most interesting facts, or what I find among the most interesting facts about the genetic relationship of at least Americans specifically, not people around the world, but among the most interesting genetic facts about Americans is that many, many, perhaps even most, and indeed I think it is most, European Americans and most African Americans are related. We're related, and that's the result of 249 years of slavery in the United States. I mean, millions, and as I say, I think it's the majority of African Americans and European Americans are genetically linked, genetically related to each other. You know, it's one of the consequences of that tragic history of slavery. And um, it's the result, of course, of the uh, rape of literally millions of enslaved African-American women by their white captors and the sons of their white captors and the uh, white uh, employees on the plantations. You know, it's, it's just a historical fact, a tragic historical fact. But because of that, <laughs> listen to this, because of that, now here we go, here's another, what I think is profound fact. Roughly 30%, almost a third, of African-American men have a Y chromosome that traces back to Europe. That's right. Almost a third of African-American men's Y chromosome chases back to Europe. Now, by contrast, the, the mitochondrial DNA of those same men, and, you know, the mitochondrial DNA is passed along only through the female line. The mitochondrial DNA of those same men accounts for only 6%, 6% of their DNA. Uh, Dr. David Reich, who is a professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School, he put it this way. He says, men contributed about three-fourths of the European ancestry that is present in the African-American population data. That data speaks to a history in which white male slave owners exploited women of African descent a fact that is well documented in the historical record. So <laughs> the fact that there is evidence of this in the genetic data should not be a surprise. It is astounding, my friends. But when we really get into the scientific data, all of us, including African-Americans and European-Americans are all very much related to each other. I mean, you know, many African-Americans still have a 
a singularly African appearance, but many African Americans do not. And that's not because we adapted over just 400 years to, to the North American climate. No, 400 years is not enough time for that to have happened. For African Americans who no longer have um, a singularly African appearance, it's because of the DNA of um, the slaveholders um, that our ancestors uh, worked for were enslaved by, I should say. So, um, all of this, I think, is very, very profound. Um, and it is information that I think we need to know, that I'm convinced we need to know, if we're going to stop killing ourselves, if we're going to stop engaging in genocide, one human group against another, if we're going to stop oppressing women, this is the, the information that we need to know. We are one. Now, there are questions that uh, people have asked me over the years as I've engaged in lectures about this subject, as I've spoken about it, uh, as I've done workshops on it. And uh, so I'll, I'll share with you some of those questions. First, people have said, well, and these have been people of European descent. If I did my Ancestry.com or any of those other DNA tests, would my African ancestry be apparent? Well, I can't answer that for every human being, of course. It varies from person to person. But at some point, if you go far enough back, sure, sure. All of our African genes are present within all of us, for sure. What's interesting is that these days, with many people doing the Ancestry DNA and the, uh, I think it's 23andMe DNA tests, um, the National Geographic Society, I think, was the first society to have these kinds of, to make these kinds of DNA tests available to, to the public. What's happening is that many people of European descent are finding that their African ancestry isn't as far back as they thought. Now, I think this is probably less true of European uh, people living in Europe. You know, European people living, people of European ancestry, I should say, living in, for example, Australia. I, I think it's far less true for them. But for people of European ancestry, primarily European ancestry living in the United States, wow, a lot of those people are finding that their African ancestry is maybe three or four generations ago that they had an African ancestor who was a, you know, a great great grandfather perhaps, or in some instances even a great great grandmother, and that's again because of the history of slavery in the United States. So if you go into some of the chat rooms of uh, some of these websites, Ancestry.com, etc., and just take a look at some of the conversations that are going on. You'll see some of what I'm talking about. People are being blown away by their own genetic history, about which they simply had no idea. So um, I encourage people to do it. We have the science. We have the technology available to us. Why not find out? I have to go to break. But when we come back, 
We'll have a few more questions, and then I'll give more information about this. Again, the call-in number is 866-472-5788-862. I'm sorry, 866-472-5788. Give me a call when we get back from the break. See you then. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Lauren is available for readings of her book, Race, My Story, and Humanity's Bottom Line, for keynote speaking engagements, training engagements, and for the facilitation of retreats. She works with both large and small organizations. Her interactive and experiential workshops range from four hours to four days in length. When working with groups, Lauren's style is a comfortable blend of both passion and peacefulness. She brings her sense of humor appropriately to all of her work. Lauren's work with groups has been described as eye-opening, inspirational, powerful, and life-changing. The goal of Lauren's work with employers is to help organizations create work environments in which every individual is both highly welcomed and equally valued. The goal of Lauren's speaking and training in the greater society is to help the human species grow in both wisdom and compassion. Her fervent desire is to help all people see the divine in themselves and themselves in each other. For more information about Lauren's programs, please visit laurennile.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. This is the fate of humanity. Crucial conversations for our survival. To reach host Lauren N. Nile with questions or comments about the program, please send an email to author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. That's author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. Now, let's return to the fate of humanity. Welcome back, my friends. So, if you were with me before the break, you know that we're talking about the oneness of humanity and the dire need at this juncture in our history for us to really understand that as a species and to begin living according to it. So I was going uh, over a few questions that I often get when I talk about this subject. Let me just share a couple of others with you. I've been asked, well, why do we have to have science tell us that we're all the same? I mean, that we're, you know, all equal. Why can't we just be good people and assume that and, 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 and just treat each other that way. Why can't people just live, some people have asked, according to the Bible or the Quran or, or, or the Torah, you know, whatever one's sacred text is, because they all tell us that we have to practice compassion and love toward each other. So why can't we just rely on that and, and you know, not have to, why, you know, do we have to go to science? Well, that's a really good question. My answer is that we should, for those, uh, for those of us who are believers, sure, we should rely on our faith traditions, um, because I think you're right, around the world they tell us that we must be compassionate toward each other, we must think kindly and behave kindly toward each other, absolutely, but I think that there are people who are agnostic and there are people who are atheist who have the same 
mandate in my view. They must also think kindly and behave compassionately toward human beings. So one answer to that question, why can't we just rely on our sacred texts, is that not everyone has a sacred text. Not everyone on the planet is a theist, a believer. There are atheists and there are agnostics, people who just don't know. And many, 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 many of those folks are good people. They're rational people. They're moral people. They're ethical people. But they can't rely on a sacred text. So that's one answer to the question. My second answer, though, is that if, well, at least it's, it's my concern, is that if we don't have scientific evidence to back this information up, some of us, even if we rely on our sacred texts or what have you, some of us may believe, well, yeah, we're all equal. But with a wink and a nod, some of us are more equal than others. And my friends, that's not the kind of equality we want on this earth. That's not the kind of, quote, equality, unquote, that we need on this earth. It's not equality at all. We need to know scientifically the true facts of our equality, of our oneness, of our sameness. Because it's the only way that I think some people will truly get it. There are skeptics about this information, and I don't blame them. It all sounds rather, if this is a word, fantastical, (laughs) that we're all from one place, that we're all related. We've never heard anything like this before. I mean, the scientific information about it has been out now for 30 years. But most of us, unless you study this stuff, unless you research it, most of us don't really know this. And so to ask people to swallow it, hook, line, and sinker, if you will, to ask people to just accept it without some kind of proof from the scientific community, I think is asking a little too much. Certainly, it's asking a lot from uh, skeptics, of, of skeptics, people who just really don't want to hear the information. So, that's my answer. We don't want to have a kind of a wink and a nod, yeah, we're all equal, but some of us are more equal than others, kind of thinking on our planet. What we need if we're going to survive is scientific, incontrovertible DNA evidence that we're all equal, we're all the same. All right. Now, I've also been asked, Don't you think that eventually all of this stuff will become irrelevant because the whole human race will be so intermixed, so intermixed, that there won't be any distinguishable races? There just won't be any noticeable differences among people, no, you know, races, if you will, that can be distinguished from one from another. I mean, we'll be so mixed up over time that eh, we won't need to know this kind of stuff. We'll just... All be, you know, one human family. That may be the case. That may be our future. I kind of think it might be a nice future, frankly. But the fact is that because we've spent so much of our history 
making false demarcations among ourselves. You know, because we've spent so much time making in our minds one group superior to another group, and therefore that other group inferior to the one group. Because we've spent so much of our time as human beings with in-groups and out-groups, and these people are smarter than everybody else, and these people aren't as intelligent, and these folks uh, have uh, the best work ethic, and you know, Asians are like this, and Africans are like this, and Europeans are like this, and Native Americans are like this, and Hispanic Americans are like this. Because we spent so much time creating these mental file cabinets. In my opinion, if it's not race in the future that we can use as a demarcation, it'll be something else. It'll be something else. You know, think about it. Our brains are actually wired to make shortcut, to, to take shortcuts. If you see uh, an inanimate object... You don't have to wonder what it is most times. If it looks like a desk, it's a desk. If it looks like a chair, it's a chair. If it looks like a lamp, it's a lamp. There's no mystery there. Our brains recognize it and boom, put it in its appropriate file cabinet. Ah, desk, I know what you are. Ah, lamp, I know what you are. You go in this file cabinet. Chair, you go in this file cabinet. I know what you are. Think about it. If every single time we looked at an inanimate object, we had to wonder, well, is that really a chair? We couldn't live our lives that way. What our brains do with inanimate objects, is the, with people rather, is the same thing that it does with inanimate objects. Creates shortcuts, file cabinets, just as it does with animals. Looks like a kangaroo, it's a kangaroo. Looks like a tiger, it's a tiger. You know, uh, looks like a giraffe, it's a giraffe. What our brains don't seem to realize is that while that shortcut mechanism works great with inanimate objects, while it works great with animals, it doesn't work at all with people. Not at all. But this is what our brains do. Oh, Hispanic person, you go in this file cabinet. I know about your characteristics. Oh, European American person, okay, you go in this file cabinet. Okay, ah, black person, I know what to do with you. This is your file cabinet. These are your characteristics. This is where you go. See, our brains are wired to take shortcuts. I remember when I first learned that fact, I was a little depressed for <laughs> for a day or so. I thought, well, how are we ever going to get out of this then if we're actually wired to do that? Well, there is a way. We'll talk about it. But my point is that, yes, if we don't use race in the future to divide ourselves because we'll all be so mixed up. We'll use something. We've been doing it for so long that we'd probably create other kinds of false demarcations. I mean, it may be based on language or, or national origin, perhaps, or economics. And so, yes, we have to learn these things now. We have to learn that we cannot keep dividing ourselves on whatever the basis if we're going to make it in the future. Whether it be race or class or sex or sexual orientation or disability, we have to unite as a species. That's the lesson we have to learn. So I don't think the lessons here are going to become irrelevant 
even if we are all sort of mixed up racially, because there's a larger lesson to learn. And that is compassion toward one another, regardless of whatever our differences. This is the end of the show. See you next week. Come back. Join me then. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival. Please join your host, Lauren N. Nile, for another edition of our program next Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. Pacific and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you right here next week. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america variety channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit VoiceAmerica.com. the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network it's staff and management.